Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Perceptive Podcast here on Game Wisdom, where we examine the art and science of games. I am Josh Blazer. We got another great cast for you this week. For this week's topic, we're going to be discussing what makes the video game design and just the medium itself unique from other ones, such as, of course, books, film, TV, and why there's always that challenge of taking something from another medium and bringing it to video games. For those of you who are longtime fans, you remember we did a cast about a year or two years ago where we talked about taking video games into other mediums, and we're going to kind of reverse that this time. But joining me for the discussion is a fan of the site and channel, as well as an enthusiast when it comes to video games and game design. Please welcome Muhammad. Hello, guys. Pleasure to meet you all. Hey, Muhammad, it is great to have you on. How are you doing today? Wonderful. Not too shabby. Uh, I was talking to you earlier about how I just woke up about 40 <laughs> minutes ago, but I'm doing dandy. Great. And we were just having a discussion before, and then this is Muhammad's first podcast. So uh, we're going to see how things go. Again, for people who've been on, I've had guests who have had like dozens, if not hundreds of podcasts, and then I've had a lot of people who were just their first one. And it's always interesting to see how people react when it comes to these casts, especially for those of you who've been following me since the beginning, because I know I've certainly changed so much in terms of doing these podcasts uh, when it comes to being like the host. But uh, with that said, uh, we do have a lot to talk about. So I guess to begin with, I guess what attracted you to game design and uh, why did you want to come on and discuss this topic with me? Well, for starters, like a lot of gamers, I grew up on video games, especially in the time when I was going through physical abuse. You know, mm -hmm. when a child is born to the world, they have no idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. And playing video games really brought order and levity to my life. But what really got me into game design was uh, back in 2014, I watched a certain anime title called Sorta Online. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, my mind has always been racing about the potential of virtual reality, the the field of game design in general, and the future of it at large. Mm -hmm. And I know you are certainly not the only one who sees potential in virtual reality. That is definitely its own topic. I know we've talked about this several times in the past with other guests. For fans of Game Wisdom, you know that my site designer, Ken, he is a huge proponent when it comes to VR and AR. And I guess for you, Mohammed, like, where do you feel like, make? what do you think makes virtual reality so appealing when it comes to either game design or just as another artistic medium? Well, what makes virtual reality so fascinating is that from for once in human history, we are able to literally create our own, our own fabrication, our own existence. That's what makes virtual reality so fascinating. It's a concept that is a very old one. Philosophers have talked about it throughout history. Mm -hmm. And virtual reality, as well as game design, the marriage of the two especially, brings about a lot of spiritual, social, and philosophical implications. Mm -hmm. And I do believe there are good things about virtual reality as well as potential bad implications. It's the good and the bad that I'm both interested in, mm -hmm. as well as how virtual reality can you be used to liberate people, as well as being used as a method to control people. Mm -hmm. yeah, and 
that's kind of the weird thing when we talk about virtual reality is that despite all the you know buzz and the growth of Oculus and um, I always forget the second one, the other big company, uh, the HTC. Vive. There, yeah, HTC yeah. Vive, and so on. We've yet to see, I think, that breakout hit from it. Would you agree with that? I wholeheartedly agree. Man, and I guess, I guess for you, like, where do you th- see like any potential pitfalls with virtual reality? Because again, for myself, I can list what I think from more of the critical point of view. But for someone who is more interested and more involved with VR, like, where do you see any potential hurdles? Hmm. I believe the hurdle would be would be the process of actually immersing our minds into com- a computer simulation. Mm-hmm. I believe that's the greatest challenge. I mean, I'm not a technologist, but just from the idea itself, I believe that's the most difficult hurdle is connecting a human mind mm-hmm. and be able to have a computer to process all that information. Mm-hmm. And I know like for myself, I again, for people who listen to me, I'm the, I got to see VR back in the 90s when it was incredibly rough. And there were discussions about, you know, the amount of strain it puts on your eyes. You know, is this really going to be helpful? Is it going to cause more harm than good? And now, while obviously technology has evolved, certainly beyond that point, I know we got uh, VR headsets that have like, I think, 90 uh, frames per second, very advanced displays, and even more technology in terms of simulating touch and feel. But I think the question remains... Will this stuff actually be both feasible and affordable to someone? Because again, like I see costs like easily like three to five hundred dollars per piece of equipment. And outside of the hardcore enthusiasts, how many regular consumers are really gonna spend, you know, fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars for the quote unquote true VR experience? Uh, that's an interesting question. And now that you bring that up, uh, the health concerns is is also something that we should be concerned about. Mm-hmm. And, um, gosh, trying to collect my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I know. These casts, we can, you never know where these topics are going to take us. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, definitely. But uh, while you're thinking about it, I guess to kind of uh, elaborate, when it comes to a lot of VR, I know when we've spoken about this before, it, we talked about from a cost perspective, we talked about from a health perspective, and then there's even just the space perspective. Because for a lot of people, it takes a, a very big space to have a full VR experience. We're talking, you know, the Omni treadmill, having the gloves, the uh, visor, headset. And I know like for myself, there is no way I could fit all that stuff in this room. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, I believe we had to go through a lot of hurdles before we're able to fully embrace VR. I think it'll be about another several decades before it actually becomes a mainstream thing to where everyone can have one and have it fit in the household. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, it's, and not just and not just those, but we also have to face with um, law-related issues concerning VR, as well as other implications like dealing with you know other life forms and other worlds but that's another area <laughs> entirely <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, bringing this back to 
our kind of our main topic, or taking this a more back to video games, I think one thing that you said was very interesting, Mohammed, about video games as a coping mechanism, either for dealing with traumatic events, dealing with injuries, and we've seen people, or we've seen studies go along those lines. I know when I spoke with uh, the creators of Second Life from Linden Labs, they spoke about kind of the potential they had with Second Life as a means for people to basically still have a social life despite being confined to their households. And then we can even take things further with many games that have dealt with either real or very political topics, such as Gone Home, This War of Mine, and I'm sure there are many other examples out there. Yes, it's very interesting that you bring that up because uh, one thing that's very unique about the video game medium is the way that it expresses certain themes. Since it's an interactive experience, for example, it's different to read a book about murder than actually play a video game where you're actually murdering people. And that's where the whole issue of violent video games come up. I, I believe we're not we're not yet at a time where we are ready to have games of an adult oriented nature on the market like on the mainstream level mm -hmm. well one of the things that i like to see in the future is where adult oriented games are able to have a place amongst the greatest films and books mm -hmm. because as long as we're not able to do that we can't really fully see the potential of this medium mm -hmm. i would like to see games that are able to explore much darker themes such as, for example, pedophilia or the more darker aspects of war of, or human nature. Mm -hmm. But I don't think most people are ready to confront those kind of themes put in an interactive context. Yeah, and I'm glad that you said the word interactive there, Muhammad, because that has always been, I think, the major sticking point for whenever we have these kinds of discussions. Because as I'm sure everybody listening to us right now knows, Film and TV has certainly evolved over the last 20 to 30 years. Again, I grew up in the 80s when, you know, what was considered mature was, you know, the horror, the slasher movies, uh, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, so on and so on. Now we flash forward to today, and what we see as mature are shows like The Wire, Breaking Bad, we're seeing more movies that deal with disturbing or very polarizing topics. And I know people have said that the last decade, or even this decade, was kind of considered the golden age of television, with TV as a medium really growing up. I mean, even when we look at uh, premier uh, TV channels like HBO, Showtime, and even Stars and so on, or even like Netflix, we even go that far, that there's really been this embrace of trying to tell deeper and more mature stories along that medium. I definitely have to agree with that. We are in a golden age of television, like with the rise of Netflix, mm -hmm. shows like Orange is the New Black, Breaking Bad. But with the case of video games, fundamentally, it all comes down to mental health. Mm -hmm. And people like to bring up the children. And for good reason. It's because... Video gaming is only about 30 years old, if I'm not mistaken. Well, mainstream gaming. Mm -hmm. But um, the interactive medium is still something that a lot of people are still getting used to. We've had a very long time to get used to books. Mm -hmm. Film, anime have been around for 100 years. We've gotten used to those mediums already. And 
like video gaming is more popular than ever and most people are still getting used to it mm-hmm. and so when it comes to video games it all comes down to mental health it all comes down to people being able to play these experiences and come back like mentally intact mm-hmm. and this segues into a man his name is stefano guilani and he's the a game designer and architect and he wrote a paper within the journal of virtual worlds research on a concept concept called de-rolling mm-hmm. and de-rolling is basically the experience of getting into character getting out of mm-hmm. character like how you put on a costume yeah. when you're on a stage for a play mm-hmm. and it's it's important it's very crucial when you are in extraordinary circumstances and extraordinary roles to be able to derobe yourself and to get back into your character be, get back into your identity to basically draw a line between your real world self and this extraordinary self mm-hmm. And that is a very interesting concept. And it's one thing, like, for fans of Game Wisdom, you guys know that I think for me, I've always had, like, I guess as a bit of advantage, that a sense of self. Like, for me, when I look at a video game, I see it as a separate thing. Like, I've never been one to get fully immersed to that point. Like, I've seen, I've read stories of people who've played games like Gone Home who have been, you know, emotionally touched by that story, or who've played This War of Mine, and had, like, a very traumatic experience, whether they lived it or just being able to experience that kind of a situation. Like, for myself, I've always treated video games from a mechanic point of view. I see it as, you know, as a product or as an experience that is separate from my life. So, the idea of derobing is incredibly easy for me i know when i turn off this game you know the world ends you know this character goes back to being just data in a game engine but as you said i'm sure for a lot of people out there there are those who get very invested in these worlds and these situations and trying to put a finger on you know just what exactly is the extent that a video game impacts us is still very much up in the air uh, most definitely. In fact, now that you bring that up, um, it also raises a question of as technology advances and we get technology such as video gaming and augmented reality even, it raises the question, um, what is the distinction between objective reality and the virtual world? Mm-hmm. There was actually an anime that came out in the late 90s. I'm sure many uh, in your audience are aware of it. It's called Serial Experiments Lane. Mm-hmm where there was a world called The Wired, which is basically the internet, and then there's the real world. And it takes place within this cyberpunk world where there's absolutely no distinction between the two. Mm-hmm. And what's most interesting about that concept... Hold on, I'm trying to capture my thoughts. <laughs> okay, so what is the self in the world where the virtual and the actual become non-distinct? And... Sorry, I had to co- I had to collect myself. <laughs> but do you know where I'm getting, I'm getting at? Mm-hmm. That ability to lose yourself in the air. And again, there have been many discussions about how anonymity affects somebody online when you can say and do whatever you want and there are no repercussions. 
I mean, we can easily, you know, segue that whole talk into the rise or the discussion about toxic culture when it comes to the game industry, with people saying all manner of vile stuff to, to you know, some random stranger online, and whether it's up to the developer's responsibility to curtail or punish someone for saying that. Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. Um, you, now that she bring that up, uh, one area of interest for me is the whole idea of developer involvement within with their game. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, the whole idea of cheating. Like, what is cheating? Yeah. Like, uh, when we think about cheating, we think about from just like a single-player point of view, being able to easily break a video game, uh, put in mods or hacks. But we can, of course, look at things even further when it comes to multiplayer or competitive-based games. And people who are trying to uh, break or cheat the system to get unfair advantage. Right. In yeah, the situation becomes a bit more uglier, more muddy when you create a multiplayer experience. But in my mind, would it be possible to create a video game world that has absolutely no development intervention? Like, one thing I like, I always love to do is compare video games to real life, mm-hmm. where in real life, you can believe in God, you can believe in nature, but there is no intercessor. There's no person to come down and smite punishment on every one person. Mm-hmm. You could live a life doing all sorts of bad things to bad people, but no one um, no one has yet to smite down on you. So would it be possible to create a game that is so balanced that requires no developer intervention and players are able to get away with many things mm-hmm. that, that are deemed unfair? Mm-hmm. And we've seen games that kind of went the um, Hunger Games, I guess, kind of route. Stuff like uh, the DayZ... Um, there's been a, a Rust being another big example where it just basically sa- the developer just says, here's this world, you know, do whatever you want, and do whatever you want usually equates to everybody just kills each other, and, you know, a few set players become, you know, the rulers of this land, and they just control everything else around them. I suppose at that point, it's a matter of survival of the fittest, mm-hmm. who is strong enough to actually, you know, own the world mm-hmm. and not the developers mm-hmm. and it all again raises that question about at what point does the developer interfe- intervene when it comes to these situations whether it is about just dealing with toxic behavior or somebody just basically taking control over the game space that's a very good question uh, when does the developer intervene mm-hmm. in my mind it all comes down to the experience and that the developer made and their intent. Like, for example, if a player encounters a problem within the game world, the developers must be confident that the player could somehow solve that problem. It's kind of like Dark Souls, except when you're facing a problem with Dark Souls, the developers actually encourage you to go to forums and to reach out to other players to solve your problem. But I can imagine there being games that are so balanced and are so that are so tight that the developer has no doubt that you will eventually be able to solve that problem even if it takes you days or weeks or perhaps even months or even years if it's a full dive vr game but Mm -hmm. we have yet to get to that Mm -hmm. now 
uh, bringing this back to our main topic in terms of how the video game medium is different from other mediums. And this kind of gets back to where you were saying a few minutes ago, Muhammad, regarding the maturity when it comes to game design. And whenever we use the term mature to describe video games, it does raise very interesting points. We already talked briefly about how interactivity adds its own unique challenge to it. But when most people think about mature themes, they, of course, think about uh, violence and sex. Whether it is, and right now, for those of you listening, we're seeing more of this argument on Steam in terms of censoring AO or mature games. And I think, as we've been saying, when it comes to these kinds of topics, a lot of people still view video games as being a young industry. That it's sh- that a lot of games are just made for kids, and it's very interesting. I think, like for people like ourselves who play a lot of video games, who study game design, that the majority of people who play games or under or who know what the medium is don't really understand. I think just how far things have come. Yes, a lot has certainly a lot has come since Mortal Kombat came out, mm-hmm. and. I don't think a lot of people take video games seriously because they have yet to see themselves the kinds of games that are out there. Like just recently, Red Dead Redemption 2 came out. Mm-hmm. We have games like The Last of Us, the new God of War even, that have these compelling adult-oriented stories that a lot of people would enjoy. Mm-hmm. I guess here's a question for you. Do you, when you, the games that you tend to pick up, do you play games for the story or storytelling aspects, or do you play more for the mechanics or gameplay? Or is it a combination of the two? It depends on the situation. Like, for example, growing up, what I love the most about video games is the music, which is why I love most JRPGs, games from Square Enix and Nintendo. For a game like Kingdom Hearts, for example, I love Kingdom Hearts... Well, mostly for the soundtrack and the story. For a game like Dark Souls, it's all about the mechanics. Well, I'm interested. It all depends on the case. Like, if it's a game like Dark Souls, I wonder what does it mean to be a game for Dark Souls? How does this game speak? Not the story, but the mechanics. Mm-hmm. How, like, how does a game like Monster Hunter World speak through its mechanics? So it all depends on the on the situation, the kind of game that I'm playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I hope that made sense. Yeah. And again, we see people embrace all aspects of game design. There are p- there are fans who, as you said earlier, in terms of those who do uh, role-playing or cosplaying, who really embrace the culture of being able to become these characters or create their own character within these respective spaces. There have been many discussions about the impact World of Warcraft and MMO design has had on the social behavior of people. Oh, that's fascinating. I never knew about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been a few uh, studies, and I know there's been a few documentaries about people who have, you know, they've found love, or they've basically, as we talked about earlier, they've had, like, a second life or a second experience through these virtual worlds. Hmm. I've actually never really felt like I was my character in a video game. Mm-hmm. And back when I was still in um, college for a brief time, I watched a video from somebody on what exactly is an RPG. And he basically described an RPG as being able to play as a role 
to weave a, a narrative within that world, making meaningful choices. And he went on to say that most video games that are considered RPGs aren't really RPGs. Looking back on that video, I can see that I can understand that a game like Kingdom Hearts couldn't exactly be called an RPG game, nor even Final Fantasy, because you're not playing as a role, weaving a narrative, making meaningful choices. You're just brought along for the ride. And in most cases, the gameplay is pretty much detached from the actual story or cutscenes. So you could say that a game like Kingdom Hearts is an action adventure game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. I think for a lot of people who got into things from the pen and paper or CRPG side, that was where you could just really have the freedom to create this character, and then you're able to do whatever you want within that game space. And that is a different experience compared to a game like Kingdom Hearts or God of War, where you are fulfilling somebody else's role within that world. I mean, you are feeling their role but you're you're not making meaningful choices as that role mm-hmm. that's why i can see that D- uh, games like D and tabletop rpg rpgs are the best ones because you're actually playing as a role that you can describe to yourself making meaningful choices if i'm playing god of war i don't feel like i'm making meaningful choices i feel like i'm just brought along for the ride mm-hmm. yep and uh, t- again, getting back to the topic of like games as a medium itself or that interactivity, that is a major part, I think, of whenever we have these discussions about the potential of video games and the medium as a whole. Uh, again, giving the player freedom to do what they want, and that's something that is unique to video games. As we've said before, until we have, you know, choose-your-own-adventure TV shows, although I'm, we've actually been hearing some advertisements about that coming up, I think, either this year or next, that video games are still a way for the player to decide just how much they want to play. And I think this goes back to what you were talking about a few minutes ago, again, with the idea of somebody fully embracing or being able to get out of the world they've built. Because it's very easy to embrace a game like Mario or Zelda, where you're the hero saving the, saving the world, you're saving the princess, etc., etc. But what about a game like Hotline Miami, or something like This War of Mine, or even The Witcher, and that kind of game space where the player is forced to do very bad or very nasty things? And then we run to that issue of how much should someone really get invested in a situation like that? It all comes down to how much they're able to take mentally. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, some people may not be able to play The Witcher because you're killing people. In fact, I read an article about one to two years ago about a group of Battlefield 3 players who actually played online without ever killing a single person. Mm-hmm. How they played on um, Battlefield 3 was basically reviving their teammates as well as enemy um, mm-hmm. opponents on the other side. And they got a lot for that by other players in the matches. But I thought it was fascinating that players can sub- subvert the very design and intention of a game and play it in a whole new way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it that's a very interesting example there of people just like trying to do their own thing within the game space. And I guess as another interesting point, again, getting back to this interactivity or focusing more on it, we've seen people really get creative 
with the building or kind of the crafting genre. Uh, games like Minecraft, uh, Roblox, and we can even go further with games such as Dwarf Fortress, Kerbal Space Program, and the like, where, again, it's just about the giving the player just a massive toolbox or a toy chest and saying, go nuts. Yeah, it's those games that give players a lot of creative agency mm-hmm. that are the most appealing. For example, Minecraft. I remember when I was in middle school when that game blew up. I had no idea what it was called. <laughs> no one could shut up about it on the internet, and I finally played it. I could see the enjoyment in it. Mm-hmm. It gives you a lot of creative agency to do what you want, to be able to create things in your own image. That sort It's like the, the process of creation itself, it gives, it gives you order. Mm-hmm. It gives you satisfaction in that you produce something of your own. Mm-hmm. And that's why games like Super Mario Maker, mm-hmm. Minecraft... And there was that one game, I can't remember. Hmm. The games from Zatronics, even. Games where you can solve your own problems and create your own things. It gives you a sense of agency. Mm-hmm. A sense of satisfaction in your own power. Yeah. It's very empowering to create things with your own two hands. Yeah. And speaking about that... There's been, there's always been this discussion about, again, giving the player the ability to do uh, evil or heinous choices in video games. And probably one of the most famous examples, I think it's one that people may still be talking about today, is of course from the classic game The Sims. The, essentially the dollhouse simulator from Maxis that has certainly become a very major part of casual players. And again, that empowering feeling of being able to do whatever you want and just kind of be that omnipotent hand above just watching and seeing what unfolds. And obviously for people who've played The Sims, you know that while you can certainly build a nice house, get people jobs, you can, of course, do everybody's uh, most famous uh option, you know, put all your sims in a swimming pool and then remove the ladder and then just watch them essentially just starve to death. And again, as we've said, for people who play video games from a mechanic standpoint, it's just a way of experiencing it. But when we have games that kind of not only let the player, but almost indulge them in these evil acts and impulses, there's that question of, is this healthy for people? That's an interesting question. I mean, with video games, they are virtual experiences, so they have nothing to do with real life. Mm -hmm. So it's a perfect space to be able to explore moral questions. But at the same time, it also raises a philosophical question of, do do NPCs have a life of their own? And that's a question that will definitely be raised when virtual reality becomes a thing. Mm -hmm. Because you actually be able to be in these worlds and have a greater degree of actions and be able to do things to people such as inflict damage upon people even rape people or rob and it raises various ethical questions like what effects will those have on players and what does it mean to be able to do these things to these virtual characters like at what point does it become unacceptable or heinous Perhaps even perhaps when NPCs have have sentience of their own and they're able to perceive the information of the world that they inhabit, they think that they have a life of their own and that's how they live. 
But in the scheme of things, they're simply in a simulation. Mm-hmm. You can say that we're in a simulation as well. So what if someone from another world came to our world and thought of us as NPCs? It's it's a very weird area. Mm-hmm. And again, it's one of those things that when we look at what is considered kind of traditional video games, it's not something that really comes up. When you have a game UI and you're able to see, you know, again, that viewpoint of someone playing a game rather than interacting within the game space, it has a different feel to it compared to, as you said, like someone in VR, when they're actually in this room and they're able to do good or bad things to the NPCs or even to other players. It's not just video games, but whatever media of one consumes, whether it be film, books, <clears throat> or even television, because all those mediums can have positive as well as negative impacts on people. Just like when the, with the er, in the early sorry in the early twentieth century, when radio was becoming more of a thing, it was a very powerful propaganda tool. Like the early twentieth century was a great time for the development of the art of propaganda. And after World War One, propagandists realized that they could use this to influence public opinion. And propaganda is basically the art of influencing public opinion. It's not inherently good or bad, but it can be used across every medium. So what it comes down to is people being mindful of the media that they consume and how it could potentially affect them if we're not careful. Now with video games and virtual reality, I've even the internet, I feel like they have much more devastating effects than even radio, film, or book because they're interactive, because they have that feedback nature that mm-hmm. is unprecedented to older mediums. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to the video game side of things, and I think we'll kind of, uh, I know we've been talking for just over probably like 35, 34 minutes. So I do want to at least talk a little bit more about where you feel like video games are unique compared to other mediums. Because we've kind of danced around it for this podcast so far. But I figure this will probably be a good time to kind of, you know, clarify it for people listening to us. So I guess with that said, the question to we turn to is, uh, like from your own thoughts, Muhammad, like, where do you see, like, what do you think is the most unique thing about video games? Like, where do you think people get it wrong the most when they're trying to equate video games to movies, TV, etc.? Interesting question. It's just so simple. It's that it's interactive. Mm-hmm. But what does it mean to be interactive? It's just that in that word is what is what lies so much potential that's what makes me so excited about on the video game medium despite to be honest i'm very tired and worn out by our current AAA culture mm-hmm. one of the reasons being is that most of the games i see halo final fantasy call of duty sure they have great games but to me they're stale and not just stale i call them ontologically stale because playing video games for so long like I know what it means for something to be interactive. I understand what makes video gaming so different from film and books. Mm-hmm. And it allows me to see the potential for what other games can exist. It's just the potential is so overwhelming that it's hard. Like 
there's just so much potential for the kinds of experiences that we can make. Just just imagine that for a moment. Mm-hmm. We can actually create other worlds, our own interactive spaces. Mm-hmm. And from there, you have to wonder, what can we make with this new medium, this interactive medium? Well, for starters, we draw upon things that we're already familiar with. Like, for example, shooters and platformers. Platformers essentially are just simply jumping onto a platform and running. With shooters, it's taking a gun and shooting projectiles. These are things that we are very familiar with as human beings, as part of our existence. Now, things outside of our direct human experience is more complex. Like, for example, how do you make a game about a virus? Or how do you make a game about something that you've never seen or sensed before? Mm -hmm. One example that I like to use is imagine an open world RPG set within cable television. Mm -hmm. Now, from there, you have to wonder how on earth would you make a game like that? There really is no proven formula for a game like that. I mean, we have proven formulas for open world RPGs now, thankfully. But an open world RPG set within cable television, it's totally unheard of. Mm -hmm. And back to what I meant by ontologically stale. Now, what I mean by ontologically stale is that most games, they they feel the same. They feel similarly structured to our own existence. Like in human existence, what do you see? You see the ground, the sky, the mountains, the ocean things that define our physical existence, our physical exploration. We have no conception of any other kind of natural phenomena beyond just that. And that's where the potential of this medium lies, is that we can create virtual experiences out of our minds, out of our human cognition. It all comes down to human imagination. And that is where it's the most overwhelming, is that there is so much to make. There are so many genres that we have yet to make, but in the AAA market, it's so streamlined now. We have come down to a formula for making interactive experiences, but there just lies so much more potential, so much more ways to speak to people, so much ways for people to see, a new way to see, a new way to feel, a new way to explore. And we have yet to unravel what this poten- this medium is capable of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope that made sense. <laughs> and I think that's always been that kind of trick when it comes to the AAA side is that, as we've said, AAA games are probably some of the most refined and polished experiences on the market. You mentioned earlier, of course, Red Dead Redemption 2, but for people listening to this cast right now, it'll probably be at least a few weeks since that game was released to, of course, massive praise from critics all around the industry. And it does follow very much that same open world format that we've seen everybody from Ubisoft to EA, and I'm sure, again, many more games, Al, many more to come, have structured their games around. It's the same thing we see with the growth of Battle Royale, and how what started as a simple mode for an indie game has now become being considered for every major shooter franchise on the market. And it's, again, I think this goes back to what we were saying earlier regarding that preconception about what is and what isn't a video game, that many people treat video games as just a AAA market. They, they only see Call of Duty or they only see Red Dead Redemption. But the independent space has certainly carved a niche out 
for being able to deliver so many experiences that you wouldn't see anywhere else. Oh, what was that name you brought up? I'm sorry, which one? You said Pen Space? Uh, I think I may have... Oh. <laughs> There's always the problem with these. I talk so fast sometimes. Um, I think I said... Uh, games like Reddit Redemption. I think I said a game space, maybe not pin space. <laughs> oh, game yeah. space. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, the the video game medium, well, my mainstream video gaming is only 30 years old. We have yet to see what it's capable of. Most people at large have yet to see how the medium can speak to them. Mm-hmm. Like when you t- when people talk about film, they can easily bring up their favorite movies or their favorite songs and how it made them felt in that moment. They have yet to play that game, and there those games are already out. Mm-hmm. They're out there to play. They just need to be, they just need to play them. Mm-hmm. And with the AAA market, you know, games that get the biggest marketing are, of course, you know, Star Wars, Call of Duty, Mass Effect, Grand Theft Auto, those kinds of games. And most people have no idea of games like Space Chem or Disgaea, even or even threads of faith old playstation one game but those kinds of games that have compelling experiences that they don't know anything about mm-hmm. yep and and you mentioned of course uh, zach tronics with games like space chem and fin factory and that's another really good example that i'm sure there are many people out there who have never heard of those games just as i'm sure there's many people who haven't heard of what I do with Game Wisdom and with the Game Wisdom YouTube channel. And it's very hard, I think, for the general consumer to kind of separate the signal from the noise of, you know, where are the games that are trying to do more with the medium as opposed to the umpteenth, you know, open world style game or Battle Royale design? Yes, that's, that's, yes. Uh, The same thing is actually happening in anime. Mm -hmm. Where one one piece of advice I like to go by by someone I follow named Digibro is that if you if you care so much about this medium, you have to dig a bit further to see what it has. Because on the surface, you're not gonna get a lot of compelling experiences that are absolutely absolutely going to blow you away. If you want to see something new, if you want to see something out there, you have to dig a bit further. And I think it's people like Matthew Matosis and channels like Joseph Anderson, that they play those kinds of games that bring those bring attention to them, like Space Chem. I would have never known about Space Chem if not for Matthew Matosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've seen uh, consumers and developers who have said like their games just kind of disappeared if it wasn't for somebody else promoting and bringing it up. I know um, a good example would be from Renowned Explorers, Abbey Games, who they have said that if it wasn't for Total Biscuit, or I should say, unfortunately, the late Total Biscuit, who did a retrospect or he did a piece on that game, that led to a, a huge amount of their sales. And it's one of the sad parts about the game industry. I think this is actually a really good tie into our overall topic, that when it comes to... Uh, TV and film, there are always ways to advertise it. You can have, you know, print ads. You can have advertisements on other uh, broadcasts or channels. Uh, you know, uh, ads on the internet and so on. There are ways to get the word out. And people, when you put together a TV show or movie, you know that there is already going to be a big marketing push for it. But for a lot of the games that we talk about, 
they can just barely make a blip in terms of advertising. Again, games like Renowned Explorers or... Uh, I know the developer just behind Papers, Please, who just released another game. I'm going to bet that most people aren't going to hear about that game. And it's always been that problem when it comes to the game industry about just trying to, you know, make some noise about your own title. Definitely. I believe that since we live in the world of YouTube has definitely benefited marketing when it comes to video games. Like, for example, with the case of PewDiePie. I believe back in 2014, it's because he ran a Let's Play on Skate 3 that there was a store in the UK that requested EA for more co- or for more copies of that game. Mm-hmm. And something like that could even potentially inspire EA to make a Skate 4, but we can only hope. <laughs> please, EA, please make that game. <laughs> yep. And <laughs> it all... But then there's, of course, the issue of just... How much control does a YouTuber or streamer have over the success of a video game? There are people who feel like they are entitled to getting games always early because, you know, they're going to play in front of their 500,000 followers. Or, you know, they feel like they're big enough that they can actually control the success or failure of somebody else's title. Well, they definitely do possess a lot of clout. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and right, it all comes down to how to present the game as well. It all comes down to whether they like it or not, or if they've been influenced to say a certain thing about the game. But usually, I feel like they're make they want to make videos on those games because either they're trending or someone told them about it, the, or they're just genuinely interested in it. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess uh, for another big point about again translating elements or themes to the video game medium. I guess, in your opinion, why do you think so many licensed works have trouble becoming a video game? Because, for again, for people listening to us, we, of course, talk about moving a video game into a film or a TV show and the, you know, often so bad it's good kind of things that result from it. But why do you think we don't see more... Uh, quality products that come from other mediums like where is you know breaking bad the video game or a actual like a really true take off of game of thrones in a video game form that's a very interesting question i i always wondered that growing up as a child but now that i can explore that question i suppose the owners of the original ip don't want to give the studio too much creative agency. Mm-hmm. Like, usually games like Iron Man or Thor, they are usually released just in time for the movie to come out. And as with games, as we all know, games take a long time to make, mm-hmm. on average about two to three years. So they had to get that game out in time. The greatest successes, like the Arkham series or the recently released Spider-Man, when you look at those, the Arkham series was essentially published by Warner Brothers. So, of course, they had the creative agency to, to let Rocksteady take as much time as they need to create a solid game. Mm-hmm. There's also um, Middle-Earth Shadow of Mordor, which is also owned by WB. Uh, Monolith Studios also had enough time to make a solidly polished game. And the recently released Spider-Man, that was published by Sony and developed by Insomniac. And Sony owns pretty much the IP for Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know too much about this area, but 
I'm sure there are various fa- factors that contribute to the creative agency that these developers have. Like, for example, the Iron Man game, Iron Man 1 game from 2008 was developed by Sega. Now, as we all know, Sega doesn't own Iron Man. It's, I don't, I don't even know who owns Iron Man, but you guys will get where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, as you said, another big point is just how far do you take these characters in terms of their IP? Like, I doubt we will ever see a licensed game based off Superman when the player has the option to kill other characters. It would be very interesting. It would be a very dark turn. But that would pretty much fly in the face of what's considered the Superman IP. Of course, that has been a very big complaint that's come up for people of, you know, the recent, I guess, quote-unquote, Snyderverse take off the uh, DCEU. Oh, definitely. So, yeah, I believe a lot of factors that contribute to the development of a superhero game. Um, I wouldn't exactly want to play a Spider-Man game where I can actually kill people, but... (laughs) And this also goes back to what we were saying earlier in this cast about, again, games that really push for mature themes. Like, um, again, like a good example in two unique areas would be something like Hotline Miami and something like This War of Mine. And again, for people who don't know what we're talking about, Hotline Miami, of course, is the top-down, very stylistic, but also very violent shooter dealing with someone basically questioning his own sanity. There's lots of discussions about what it means to play a game like this. While something like This War Mine dealt with the traumatic experience of having to live through a war zone and making tough choices as to who to save and who to essentially let die. And, again, like these are two games that really approach the idea of a mature theme, but from two completely different points of view. It's great that you bring that up, because one game that really puts forward ma- more mature themes in games is Hellblade. Mm-hmm. And with games like those, you have to... You're, Developers are basically walking a thin line when it comes to mature themes because they have to understand what they're saying with their game to communicate these themes. It's like someone trying to read a paper on a stage and they say a word wrong. Or are you trying to speak to someone of an opposite language like Japanese and you say the wrong phrase? So when it comes to those mature themes, developers have to put in great time and care and understand what they're saying with their product. Like with Hellblade, <clears throat> Ninja Theory collabor- collaborate with all with a lot of mental health practitioners on the theme of psychosis because obviously they don't know a whole lot about psychosis. So they had to really nail that and get it right. Mm-hmm. And in the end, they did. And in in fact, inspired a lot of people who have dealt with psychosis or people who know others who dealt with psychosis. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you brought up Hellblade there because. Uh, this is a discussion we've had before on these casts about whenever we talk about mature themes or disturbing themes, there's always that very fine line you have to walk between uh, being able to uh, show something in its true light versus glorifying it and making it seem like you know it's perfectly fine or it's acceptable to do something. And that's another major point that I think is very unique to the game industry because of the interactivity. When you watch a movie, you can see, you know, somebody doing vile acts, and you know that this person is not good, or you know that 
something is going to happen to them. Like, they are flying in the face of society. But if you play a video game where you are being encouraged to, you know, go around and kill innocent people, or a game that tries to play up or make light of disabilities or mental issues, you are not just doing that. You are letting people essentially take part in that revelry. And that, I think, takes a whole different connotation compared to movies and TV. Definitely. So I believe there needs to be more communication and understanding on the part of gamers, developers, as well as the everyday as well as the everyday person. Because film had to go through this go down the same road. There were certain films that would not have been a would not have been made like several decades ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's always that very interesting case of just where that line rest and then when people start pushing that line or going beyond it and then what happens after like uh, going back to steam for a second the kind of we started to see a few of these very mature very sexualized games on steam like about i think a year or so ago maybe a little bit more than that and then once people saw that not only was there money in there but that the storefront was accepting that things kind of took off. And now, I mean, these days, for people who watch our live shows, you know that pretty much every week there's at least five to ten different games of that genre. And it always raises that point as to would we see someone actually make a, I don't want to say legitimate, but a more serious or more high-level example of these kinds of games if we don't have the more disturbing or the lower quality games kind of setting the bar. Hmm. I'm sorry, what was that last part? If we would see more people trying to make a legitimate or a high quality take on what a lot of people consider to be, you know, like trash games or shovelware. Oh, yes, definitely. Well, Steam, they, they need to clean up their act when it comes to actually curate, curating the games that people see. Mm-hmm. Because right now, Steam's reputation consists of, you know, shovelware games and low-quality games. And gamers, they can't take a marketplace like Steam seriously if those are the first games that people see or the games that are associated with their service. So, Steam... I think they're going through a brand i brand identity problem. Mm-hmm. I think it's cool that they're allowing AO rated games and anti games even, mm-hmm. but, but they had to let people understand what it is that they're doing, so that people can understand. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, and there has to be some kind of standard for what is and what isn't allowed on Steam, and that's like another hour and a half conversation easily. And Definitely. Like, when it comes, again, to this whole idea of interactivity with video games, it's one of those things that it really has changed what we consider to be interactive over these years. Again, I grew up playing games like Mario and the original Zelda, where interactivity was basically following what the developer wanted me to do at every step of the way. But as we've seen with the growth of modding and people being able to do or emergent gameplay, you can really set things up to allow players to do almost whatever they want within that world. Definitely. Well, 
what it means to be interactive and the ways that players can interact within a game space, it changes as more ideas are able to flourish and technology is able <clears throat> is able to advance. Like at the time when you're playing Mario, we would not have been able to think of um, conceptualize a game like Anthem or Destiny mm -hmm. because the technology to actualize those ideas weren't possible. And that's what makes video game medium is so exciting. Like with Mario, it's the case of getting from point A to point B. But with a game like Devil May Cry, it's a matter of executing this combo X, X, Y, X. And just the ways in which we can interact with the game, it all depends on imagination. It's like, how would you communicate that to a player? Mm -hmm. Yep. And, I mean, from a design standpoint, that's also very hard to do, to let the player know just how far they're able to go within the game space. And once you've set that expectation, anything that breaks them out of it is going to make the title seem almost like ten times worse. Like, for fans of, you know, action or open world games, everybody loves when they run into an invisible wall, you know, just, like, sitting, like, just in an empty field somewhere and they can't go because the game says that you can't do something. And we have certainly seen developers move away from that. They've been trying to craft more realistic experiences. And I think probably one of the big examples of that from the AAA side would be the Assassin's Creed franchise, who have really developed some of the, like, the most like beautifully space open world environments I think I've seen in a game, probably if I ever get a chance to play Red Dead Redemption 2. Oh, Red Dead Redemption 2 certainly is, is beautiful, but one of my nitpicks, well, a problem that a number of gamers had with Red Dead Redemption 1 is that despite how realistic these games can be, like Assassin's Creed and Red Dead Redemption, there's always something that totally breaks yeah. the immersion. Like, for example, in Assassin's Creed 1, like Altair, he can't swim. In Red Dead Redemption 1, John Marston, you can jump into a body of water and he'll immediately die. And it always made me wonder, is like, why do they invest hundreds of millions of dollars into these games mm -hmm. and then let players do things that are just absolutely stupid make absolutely no sense it's like how is an assassin not not able to swim or a cowboy not able to swim i never understood that mm -hmm. <laughs> and as perhaps like the greatest moment of serendipity that needs to be uh, said on these casts just as you were saying that muhammad i just got a text message from one of my friends who said that he hates red dead redemption 2 and he wants to talk about it <laughs> that is perfect that I don't think sure. will ever happen, like on these podcasts. Like that is just like a perfect break there, but yeah, and that has always been a very fun thing when we talk about game design. Is that dissonance? And I'm sure since you study game design, Muhammad, you've probably have heard the term ludo narrative dissonance probably a few times in your studies at this point. Yes, ludo scababib discogence, as you know, Jim Sterling would say mm -hmm. it, and. That is, and I think that's another really big point again about video games as a me as an interactive medium versus other industries. Because when we look at TV and film, again, we have no connection or direct connection to these spots. We are watching them. You know, we can't tell an actor. You know, hey, you know, we just found that so and so just had a twenty minute long discussion. You better watch out for that. But in video games, when we have that interactivity, 
something usually has to give. Probably the most famous one, one that we've been seeing more of, is an RPG layer. This is what drives me nuts about the latest Assassin's Creed games, where I'm a badass assassin. I can, you know, climb up buildings, leap, you know, 50 feet into hay barrels and all that. But if a common soldier has a is four levels above me, that guy might as well just be like, you know, Rambo meets Chuck Norris. I will never beat him, no matter how grave an assassin I am. Yeah, to be honest, I've lost interest in the Assassin's Creed games after the main storyline ended, but that's the one thing that I don't particularly like about Origins and Odyssey. Like, I, I watch several gameplay videos on YouTube of people playing the game, and it just baffles me how you can use your hidden blade to tr- to attempt to kill somebody, but it doesn't because they have a health bar and a level above them. Yeah. It just brings me out of the experience. Mm-hmm. And... Like, I like the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, that just kills a lot of games for me as well. Like, I've partially liked it with the Borderlands series, but again, it comes to that point of basically the game space interfering with our own perception of what's going on. Like, if I get this perfect sniper rifle shot on this enemy, right in the head, you know, you get critical hit, it sounds all amazing, but then you see it took off maybe you know, a 34th of his health bar because he's considered a badass or he's 10 levels above me, then it's like, okay, that, yeah, that's not supposed to happen. Like, I'm being essentially punished by the game's design at that point. Well, in that virtual world, fundamentally, it's not like our real world. Mm-hmm. Like with Borderlands, you can you can get a headshot on an enemy or you can try to kill someone with a hidden blade but at the end of the day, that's not how the that's not how that reality functions. I can imagine myself being transported into that world, like from an anime, and I try to get a headshot, and he doesn't die because that's just not what happens in this world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And like, as a really good point, you mentioned a few minutes, or you mentioned at the start of this cast, the anime Sword Art Online. Which, for people who didn't see that, or at least heard of it, it was an anime that basically took place in its own MMO world. And I know there's been discussion about the quality of multiple seasons. I only watched like part of the very first one. But as someone who studies game design and all that, like I just got this like very like like glee watching like them try to take like game design elements and turn it into an anime. And I just remember, like, one point that this always stood out to me about that, where the main character was talking about how he was essentially immortal because he figured out how to break the healing and skill system. And I just, like, laughed, like, when I was, like, watching that going, they just describe, you know, somebody exploiting a game as, you know, a major story point. Yeah, Slaughter Online gets a bad rap because, funnily enough, it's actually a poorly written story. Mm-hmm. The, the, this YouTuber I follow named Digibro, he made an hour video <laughs> called a Slaughter Online Diatribe, and I've watched it countless times. And it's because he pointed out all the flaws of Slaughter Online that made me realize why I love Slaughter Online. It's for a very weird reason. I wrote an entire blog article on that, but I'm not going to get into <laughs> that. But one of the things that fascinated me about the show is that Kirito was able to overcome the system that the creator Sora Online created. Because when you consider that virtual experiences are created by people, 
and that video games are systems. Mm-hmm. Who's to, who's to say that those systems can't be broken mm-hmm. or modified? And that's exactly what Kirito did. He was able to overcome paralysis, and he was over he was able to overcome death itself. Mm-hmm. Now, when he came up, overcame death itself was very <laughs> symbolic for me. I mean, the reason why he was the only one able to do it made absolutely no sense. Yeah. But the idea of overcoming death and paralysis was very it was very fascinating to me from a game design and spiritual standpoint. Mm-hmm. And again, this goes back to what we were saying earlier in terms of developer intervention, because this again is another big unique factor that the developer or the creator of a game does have the freedom to <coughs> excuse me, does have the freedom to change the experience. We've seen this with many games as a service or lifestyle games that have gone through massive changes over their many months or years. Again, stuff like Warframe, Payday 2, World of Warcraft, and etc., they are not the same game they were at the launch. Sometimes it's a case of adding in new content. In other cases, it's changing how the rules work once it gets invo- once the player base gets involved. And we mentioned this earlier in terms of toxicity, but what about when somebody does discover that exploit? Like, going back to the Store R Online example, what if somebody is playing an online game and they figure out that they can make their character immortal, that nobody else can beat them, and they become the top player and they just dominate? At that point, is it up to the developer to say, yeah, we didn't intend for this to happen, we need to get rid of it, or do they let it go? It all comes down to how the developers fundamentally designed the game Mm -hmm. like if the game was designed in a way where a player can overcome death and it potentially breaks the game Mm -hmm. then that means that the system that they created was inherently bound to fail because of that exploit now if they made a game where players are able to overcome death and the system itself was not compromised I believe it all comes down to the wisdom of the developers. They had to be able to foresee things like that to happen. But I don't know how well developers are able to do that. Mm -hmm. But it all comes down to how much wisdom the developers have when it comes to foreseeing these problems and being able to create shortcuts um, for when these things happen within their virtual space. It's like with life itself, with the whole issue of good and evil. There are good people... And there are bad people. Bad people can do good, bad things such as rape and steal and enslave entire populations of people. And yet life itself doesn't break as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Life goes on because life – I like to call life life online. This is where we get philosophical <laughs> because no matter what happens under the sun, life always finds a way. The most monumental or the monumental thing could happen. Humanity could be gone. The present could be shot. All black people could could die. Our entire earth could be destroyed. The entire solar system could be destroyed. But at the same time, you could say God, nature, forced that. And so naturally, life finds a way. So if a player overcomes death, and then all the players do the same, if the game breaks, then that's the fault of the developers because they didn't foresee such... A thing to happen. Mm-hmm. 
And I guess uh, as a follow-up then, in your opinion, Muhammad, like how far or how much should a developer be controlling or monitoring a game like this? Because again, we've seen developers who kind of, they release the game, they do patches, and then, you know, they move on to the next product. Other developers will basically stay on a game for months, even years, making sure the experience stays at that level of quality they originally intended. Hmm. Or it could even be just on so a case-by-case basis as well. So the question is, how far should developers stay on their game? Yeah. Hmm. I think until the, well, the game is able to regulate itself. Like, I like to vouch for the idea that if a developer is moving on to another game, then naturally there'll be a community of enthusiasts that are willing to help keep it running. So I believe at that point, that's when they should leave their game because there are people out there that can run servers for these games that have long, you know, shut down and they're willing to, um, to solve the bugs or anything that may happen or release patches. The, play- the players can do that, the community. And I wish that more developers and publishers would do that rather than just shutting down an online game entirely. Just give the keys to the kingdom to the community, to the players, and they'll run it themselves. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm glad that you brought that up, because that actually gives me one other point, and I know we are approaching about an hour and 15 into our overall recording, so we'll probably begin to wrap things up in the next few minutes. But there is one other big aspect that I want to talk about. I think this could probably be like a major topic in of itself. And that has to do with the ownership of the player. This is, again, another unique aspect behind video games. As we've said over the course of this cast, many people do become heavily invested in these game spaces, be it from a gameplay standpoint, from a storytelling, or even from a role-playing standpoint. As a good example of this, Whenever there is Kingdom Hearts-related news out there, there are people on Twitter and on YouTube who, they just lose their collective minds in terms of excitement. There are people who will, you know, roleplay as every one of their major characters. They will go to every convention. They will write, you know, fan fiction after fan fiction and so on about these worlds. But, at the end of the day, they don't have any real ownership or I guess um, I guess a qualitative ownership over these spaces. If Square Enix tomorrow announces that going forward Kingdom Hearts will be a you know Battle Royale Call of Duty clone, then Kingdom Hearts will become a Battle Royale Call of Duty clone. It doesn't matter how many fans continue to do their own thing there. But again, when it comes to the video game industry it affords for people to really try or hope that they have this major connection that you don't see, or at least we don't see it to that same extent when we talk about other mediums. Hmm. Yeah, this is a complex question. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I believe it comes down to the publisher or whoever owns the property. But at the same time, well, personally, I like, I'd like i love to give players some sense of ownership with the things that they like. Like, for example, in Japan, I don't know if you know about it, but there's a convention called Comiket, where 
well, where popular creators, they actively allow their fans to create their own content, which they call Dojin. It could be hentai or games or other kinds of merchandise or content. Mm -hmm. And they allow people to invest in the things that they like rather than, you know, shutting down their projects. Mm -hmm. So I believe it all comes down to whoever owns it. I'm sorry. I don't know too much about this area. It's, a, yeah. it's a, quite a complex one. Mm-hmm. But uh, when it uh, takes back to the game industry, again, we see people, even uh, as a good example, the modding community. There are people, whether they make fan-made games, unofficial mods, or even people who have been able to make a living off of their mods, such as uh, many of the people who made mods for uh, Skyrim or the Elder Scrolls games, I remember there was an artist who made custom buildings from uh, the City Skylines games. He was a former uh, artist for Maxis, and he actually made quite a bit of money, kind of helped him out, making his own custom stuff for City Skylines. And even stuff like the Long War for XCOM, who I did a interview with the developer of that a few weeks ago. Like, these are cases of fans essentially taking things further and kind of keeping to this point of going beyond what the original develop, developer envisioned. Uh, as a really great example, Valve with Team Fortress 2. I'm sure Valve didn't sit there and think, oh, all of our fans will just make so-and-so. We've seen a huge creative output from fans and modders trying to put their own work on there. Just as I am sure that if Blizzard ever had, you know, like an open call for custom work, I can just imagine that studio being flooded with so much original content from fans. Yeah, I think with regards to copyright, the nature of copyright would have to, ch- would have to change. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's something that should definitely be encouraged. Mm-hmm. Like, there's this one website that I found out, and this segues, segues into this year's E3. When Beyond and Good Beyond Good and Evil Two was on the Ubisoft E3 yeah. stage, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt he was on the stage and he was talking about his platform called Hit Record, and Hit Record is a social media platform where you basically allow people to remix your content and create your own content and make money doing it. So what they did is that they ran a cross promotion between Hit Record and Beyond Good and Evil Two, mm-hmm. where people on the social platform they can create content that may potentially get into Beyond Good and Evil 2, which I thought was very cool. Mm-hmm. But uh, whenever we talk about that, then we have to mention the flip side of just how much control or how much ownership do these people actually have over this content, especially, again, from a monetary standpoint. If you create some like badass sculpture or unique character model that gets made or gets put into the game, do you actually see anything from that? Like just how much does your fandom actually, you know, impact this game space? Or more importantly, does it impact what you do for a living? Well at that point Well at that point fan participation that's when fan participation could be exploited. Mm-hmm. Where if you're a company, well, you could be a company that encourages creativity and credits the fan who made that, or you could exploit their participation just to, just to simply make more money mm-hmm. or to just get ahead with your own agenda. So I feel like that's like the um, 
what do you call it? That is the double-edged sword of fan culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, it can go. It can go two yeah. ways. And it's always very tricky. Again, when we start talking about the fans' ownership over a product. Because, again, there are people who really embrace certain games or certain characters. As a, another big example, and I think we'll begin to wrap things up after this, was from City of Heroes, a game that lets you create your own superhero and eventually your own supervillain. And people made, you know, custom characters. They put, you know, hours into defining backstories and the exact costume they wanted. And then when those servers closed, again... Everything that those people did was gone. And again, that's something that is unique to the video game industry is that you always have, and especially in today's digital world, there's always that threat that things can be pulled out from right underneath you. With games under copyright laws or games no longer being sold in stores or having servers, if, if you're a fan of a multiplayer game and those multiplayer servers close and there's no alternative, then guess what? That game is gone. It is, doesn't matter if you have a physical copy or you kept all the files on your hard drive, you will never be able to experience that game again. That's interesting because the video game industry, like other in- industries, is organized around to benefit the corporations. So, and the corporations, obviously, they don't have, well, most corporations don't have our interest. I would like to see a game industry that actively encourages community and is organized around that mm-hmm. to where games like multiplayer games, for instance, don't have to shut down and get and to be lost forever, that they could be archived and that these creations that fans have made go away. But with companies, if something has outlived its service, like, for example, with EA, because they have a habit of shutting down their servers after after several years, I would like to see those games to to have a second life, mm-hmm. pun intended. Yeah. But I think with that, we'll begin to wrap things up. Again, we could easily segue into any number of topics when it comes to game design. But to, I guess, put a... Uh, or tie a bow on this cast. Uh, for you, Muhammad, in terms, again, of the interactivity or uniqueness when it comes to the game industry, I guess, where would you like to see things go going forward in terms of that point? Oh, gosh. I would just, I would just simply love to see more games that are willing to stretch the medium forward. I mean, I have my, the own, my own dream games I love to see, mm-hmm. but more creative expression, more risk, more ambition, because that's something I'm definitely not seeing from most AAA games these days. And I do think I do need to look at, look down to the ground to see more exciting things that are going on. Mm-hmm. So do you think, I guess, do you have any thoughts as to like, what would be like the next step or where uh, games can go from where we're at right now? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> I really simply where games could go right now, again, more experiment. This, we're at a time where we're where we can do more experimentation. Mm-hmm. The video game market has gotten larger. More and more people are playing video games. This is a perfect time to allow developers to experiment more. Like with Microsoft's acquisition of Ninja Theory and various other studios, they have that cushion, that protection to make the kind of game that they want 
to get in as many hands as possible. So more experimentation, really, on smaller, ambitious projects. All right. And I guess for myself, as like kind of my final thoughts then, when it comes to the game industry and this level of interactivity, again, it can be considered a double-edged sword in terms of just how much you want the consumer to become invested in the space, but also being able, what kind of stories you're able to tell them as well. As we said earlier, video games for a lot of people are still considered to be kiddie. And when we see games like Red Dead Redemption or uh, Gone Home or any number of titles that start to embrace more mature themes or more mature storytelling, that always begins to move that needle forward. And we always keep saying this, but it's going to be very fascinating to see, especially I think over this next decade, what becomes of the game industry. Because the last decade was kind of the game industry achieving, I think, mainstream popularity. This decade is the game industry basically making use of that. And it's going to be very, I think, unique what's going to happen over the next 10 years in terms of now all those people who, you know, went to school or got to see the game industry blow up, it's now their turn to try and make something and, you know, put their own stamp on things. And I think we're going to be in for a very exciting time. Oh, yes. This decade will certainly be more interesting because now that we have this infrastructure, mm-hmm. more and more people are now able to make a game, make games on the fly and with as little money as possible. So there's going to be more competition and more smaller studios are cropping up. More and more people are becoming jaded with the current state of things. Mm-hmm. And with the rise of digital streaming and digital distribution, more games and more ambitious ideas will be able to get in the hands of people. So I'm, I'm also very excited for this new decade upon us. Mm-hmm. But I think with that, we will wrap things up for this cast. And uh, Muhammad, if you mind hanging on Discord for like 20 seconds, I need to start encoding the audio, and then we'll wrap up the call. Oh, definitely. But uh, back to it in three, two, one. But I think with all that said, we will end things here because whenever you get two people who love talking game design together, these casts can just run infinitely. You never know when it's going to end. But it was certainly a pleasure hanging out with you this, well, it's kind of a uh, overcast Saturday afternoon for me. But uh, again, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been really wanting to connect more to people mm-hmm. who share similar interests as I do. Mm-hmm. This is my first podcast. It was a, a little bit awkward. <laughs> but I think you did fine for the cast, and we had a really great discussion. Oh, yes, we definitely did. Mm-hmm. We could talk a whole lot more. Uh, I'm going to leave um, some sources in the chat box for you if you want to look at that later. Okay, great. But uh, with that said, we're going to end things here. So for everyone listening, thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to be a future guest for either a live or recorded chat or write a guest piece for the site, you can find information and links under Submissions Wanted. We are always looking for new people to come on. So please uh, don't be shy to get in touch. You can follow me on Twitter at GWBicer for updates from me throughout the day. We have our Patreon, patreon.com slash GWBicer. You like support things directly and help to raise more funding and allow me to add more content. 
Be sure to check out our Discord channel linked there as well. And of course, lastly for me, you can find our YouTube channel for daily videos, game spotlights, and even recorded talks on game design. But uh, for you, Muhammad, uh, do you have any social media or your site or anything you'd like to plug before we let you go? Oh, yes. Well, I do have an Instagram and an online store. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to go to my Instagram, it's Negromancer with two um, underscore two eyes, mm-hmm. and also run an online store at Negromancer.threadless.com. All right. But I think with that, we will wrap things up. So uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Be sure to come back for another discussion about the art and craft of game design right here on Game Wisdom and on the Perceptive Podcast. But until then, have a good night. Good night.